would not have three better speakers here. First off is Pinton O'Toole, who is a columnist at the Irish Times and widely thought to be one of the most and the best respected columnists working in the English language. Um, he's here tonight because he's just written a book, which you'll see outside in the lobby, Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain, in which he skewers the myths of, the English, of English nationalism and puts forward an excoriating cultural analysis on the political ideas that underpin Brexit. Brexit, he says, is ultimately full of self-pity. Joining him is Misha Glenny, who's journalist, author, and absolutely consummate European, who speaks no less than six languages and is at home right across the continent. Apart from Misha being really well known for having written McMafia, and he's writing series two now, and he's got a stage show coming to a theatre near you, which we all highly recommend, he's also got a hit podcast, um, How to Invent a Country, which just looks at the history of Europe and asks when, and more importantly, how did countries get formed? For anyone who's read Yuval Noah Harari, you will be left with one of the ideas that actually at the end of the night, a country is only an idea because we all believe in it. And chairing all this is the wonderful John Snow, who I'm glad to say his, he was saying that the viewers for Channel 4 News go up and up. Uh, we all want news, and John is just the best person in Britain, probably in Europe, to be chairing this tonight. So please give a very big warm welcome to our three speakers. Well, good evening, everybody, and um, welcome to this extraordinary establishment. Um, absolutely amazing, and it's wonderful to see so many people here. We are, let's be candid, gathered around heroic failure tonight. And um, I've got to make a confession before we start, because we're going to be talking a lot about heroic failure. Um, my, I, I, I grew up uh, in a very conventional English setting, and my, I was above the mantelpiece in the dining room at home was a fine portrait of Major General Sir Thomas Doyley Snow. And I was brought up to believe that my grandfather was an absolute hero. In reading this book, I've had to sort of adjust my understanding of him. <laughs> because not only did he go to the relief of Khartoum, where they arrived three, three weeks too late to do anything to save Gordon, but nevertheless is reported as an extraordinarily heroic achievement to get to Khartoum at all. But anyway, so there was number one heroic failure. Um, but the second part of the Khartoum thing was that he actually brought back a piece of the step on which Gordon died and had it on his mantelpiece. And there it survived until his house was blitzed in 1940 and they were unable to disentangle it from the rest of the rubble. Uh, the second uh, arena in which he, I thought, had played a most heroic part was at the retreat from Mons. And that was something my father talked to me in very hushed tones. My grandfather had led the retreat from Mons and had got most of the people out alive. But what my father never told me was that actually the battle that preceded the retreat was a total abject failure. And he was in charge of that too. <laughs> I think you'll understand why I've had to make this confession as soon as we get talking. And I want Finton, Finton, first of all, to kick off and explain heroic failure, Brexit, and the politics of pain. Thank you, John. 
Um, I feel so guilty now of having um, disillusioned you of your entire ancestry, you know. <laughs> um, uh, thanks very much for, for, for coming tonight, and, and uh, it's, it's just such an honor to have uh, Misha and, and John on stage with me. Um, so really, the, the book started um, in July. Uh, I, I, was, um, I thought I was going on summer holidays in the west of Ireland, and Boris Johnson uh, resigned as he was always going to do whenever any whiff of responsibility might come his way. And you may remember he, he wrote this um, resignation letter to, to Theresa May and in it he said the Brexit dream is dying and uh, ruining my holidays and my wife's holidays I started thinking so what's the dream? You know we, we know in a way what the political process is, although we've no idea even now of its outcome, but, but what's the dream world of Brexit? What, what kind of imagination does it come out of? And so I, I just thought it might be interesting to try to, in a way, trawl that um, dream world or nightmare world, as, as one might say. Um, the question you have to ask, the, the sort of underlying question, about Brexit is how does a prosperous, privileged Western European society come to imagine itself as being intolerably oppressed? Uh, how do you get yourself into that state of mind? Um, because on the surface, it is the thing that requires explanation. When you look at um, the tyranny of the European Union, you know, and, and you ask, in what does it consist? You know, it's, it's largely, of course, fictional. Uh, we know that you've had 30 years of drip feeding uh, by the Murdoch Press, by the Daily Mail, uh, by the Express of... of invented stories of, of oppression. But the extraordinary thing about the oppression is that even if it were true, most of it would be in the realm of kind of, you know, seaside postcard humor. <laughs> you know? So one of the stories was that uh, women would be forced to return their vibrators if they wanted to buy new ones under European Union legislation. One of the stories was that the European Union was forcing English fishermen to wear hairnets while they were fishing. Um, one of the stories was that European Union legislation was forcing um, people who were transporting shellfish across borders uh, to give the shellfish two hours rest and a shower in the course of, you know, and you can go on with these stories. And they're, they're sort of, in a way, a kind of wonderful example of English humor. You know, they're, 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 they're from the same imagination that gives you Monty Python um, and, and, and the goons going back, you know, it's... But, but how do you begin to turn that idea of this is what the absolute Nazi bastards are doing to us, you know, into a sense that you are an oppressed nation which requires then an act of liberation? And I think then you have to go back into, in a way, the two most obvious things, you know, what, what's distinctive um, here. Um, one of them, of course, is England's relationship, and I, I say England in particular because I think 
Obviously, Brexit is primarily an English phenomenon, but England's relationship to the Second World War. Um, in a way, England never got over winning the Second World War. Um, the sense that, that um, and, and in a way, it's, it's quite justifiable. You know, I think it's fair to say that no nation in history has ever experienced what the English experienced, which is you win a, a major existential conflict, arguably the major conflict. And within 10 years, you're looking at the countries that you defeated, and they're doing better than you are. So the three Axis powers, uh, Germany, Italy, and Japan, are all kind of undergoing either their first huge industrial revolutions, uh, or they are you know, reviving themselves in extraordinary ways by the mid-1950s. Whereas Britain is kind of, seems to be struggling economically, um, has a huge balance of payments deficit, and of course you've got the loss of empire, which is the second thing you have to then think about that factors into this. So, um, you know, you've got the, the, the interaction between those two things going on at the same time. And these create a, a sort of strange kind of dark fantasy world in which instead of having really won the Second World War, Britain can be imagined as having lost it. And instead of having been the great imperial power, it can turn that around and imagine that it's actually being colonized. The idea of having lost the Second World War, um, you know, this, this really becomes... Um, there's a very um, powerful film that was made, a mock documentary that was made in the 1960s called It Happened Here, using um, black and white footage and intercutting it with um, archive footage, which makes it look like the Nazis invaded, and you've got film of the Nazis, you know, all over Westminster. Um, but this is taken up very much after Britain joins the, the, the European Union. You've got SSGB, Len Dayton's book and series. You've got uh, Robert Harris's Fatherland. You know, it, it's, you've got book after book, film after film, which kind of imagining this fantasy of us having lost the war. And, of course, this feeds into... Uh, really, then, the, the, insofar as there is an idea here, it's that the European Union is effectively the Germans achieving by economic and political means what they failed to achieve by military means. So the European Union is essentially a front. Now, you might say this is ludicrous. It's only stuff in, in thrillers and movies. But what does David Davis tell us? during the referendum campaign and again after the referendum, when he's actually Brexit secretary, the Brexit negotiations will not be conducted in Brussels, they will be conducted in Berlin. Why? Because of course, we all know the European Union's not real. It's, it's really the Germans. And the deal will just be done between ourselves and the Germans. And, you know, you get this, it's, it's a constant thing in the hard Brexiteers, the Germans will not allow uh, Britain not to get everything at once in the end. Last week again, we had David Davis saying, don't worry, the Germans will blink first. You know, so you, 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 this is real. This kind of mentality plays into the whole thing. And the idea of turning yourself from being the colonizer to being the colonized, you know, is, is also fascinating, I think. Um, it comes really, I suppose, from hangover of an imperial mindset. In an imperial mindset, there's only two states you can have. You're either top dog or you're being kicked. You're either superior or you're inferior. You're either 
And this is where um, Fifty Shades of Grey comes into it. You're either dominant or you're submissive. You, know? <laughs> you can't, you know, there's nothing in between in, in, in that imperial mindset. So what do you do when you're just normal? When you are neither dominant nor submissive, when you're, you know, a, a modern 21st century country that's involved in a complex, consensual network of shared sovereignty, it, it doesn't compute. But if you're patently not dominating it, then it must be dominating you because there are only those two states. So then you get this kind. This is where self-pity comes into it. You know, where you actually have to imagine yourself. Uh, as being colonized. Of course, this also uh, connects with the xenophobia. You know, so part of the idea of colonization is it's, it's partly that you've got this German domination, but also going back to Enoch Powell from the 60s. I mean, Powell linked the European Union with uh, migration by people of color. You know, this is the invasion that didn't happen in the, in the Second World War. We, we, we've, we fended off the invaders, and now we're being invaded through our own fault. We're letting them in, we're letting the Europeans dominate us, and we're letting the former colonial subjects come and take over. You know, that kind of dark, dark fantasy is there. So these things do feed into Brexit, and you get, of course, then you get, you just look at the language, look at how often they've talked about Britain, you know, even in the last year, um, being colonized. You know, we're going, to, we're going to become a colony of the European Union. It's a very weird example of being careful what you wish for. You know, if you start thinking about yourself as a colony, you end up actually maybe talking yourself into that condition. And finally, um, the, the, one of the things that kind of feeds into this then is the, the long history of heroic failure. Um, heroic failure is remarkable. I think it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's astonishing, as John was saying, the degree to which popular English history uh, focuses on Scott of the Antarctic, Gordon of Khartoum, the Crimean War, the Charge of the Light Brigade, Franklin's doomed exhibition, uh, expedition rather, to the Northwest Passage. Uh, Franklin's, uh, uh, the, the Franklin story is absolutely wonderful. They found the Franklin story just after Bre the Brexit vote. They found the, the, the ship um, and it brought the story back to mind. You know, but what happened with Franklin was not only was Franklin a, an extraordinary failure in that he, he lost his ship and all his men, but they kept sending more expeditions out to try to find Franklin, and then the, those expeditions had to be rescued themselves, and it, just, just, it went on for 20 years. Um, so this attraction to this idea of heroic failure. So um, the, the, the idea was that, that you really show your character not in success but in failure. That, that it's, it's the, when you are doomed that the true English character comes out. The great statement, of course, of heroic failure is, is, is Captain Oates, you know, walking out of the tent when, when, when Scott and, and all his men are dying and, you know, saying, I am going out now and I may be sometime. You know, it's, uh, it's understated, it's stiff upper lip, it's we show that we are better than everybody else because we accept the pain. We accept it as showing our superiority in a strange way. And this is really about a kind of, you know, an imperial power taking on the pain of other people. So it kind of says, you think you suffered in the imperializing process, but we suffered much more. You know, and, and we, didn't, we didn't complain about it, so what, what are you complaining about? Um, the difference is that heroic failure in the British imagination was always characterized by the lack of self-pity. So it was an upper-class cult, 
And it was a way of saying, you know, English upper-class men are superior because they face triumph and disaster and treat them as twin imposters. You know, it doesn't matter. We are superior to these things. What happens, I think, in the mentality that leads us into Brexit is that, that this cult of heroic failure becomes uh, politicized uh, in a new way, but it becomes politicized uh, through self-pity. So instead of keeping out self-pity, it sort of encourages it. Uh, it says that we're going to suffer all this pain and it will be good for us. Um, and it won't be our fault. It's, it's being inflicted on us by other people. Um, so I think what we're seeing you know, is very much um, a kind of bastardized idea of the cult of heroic failure um, in the classic cult of heroic failure with uh, John's antecedents. You, you at least were expected to suffer the pain yourself. What we're now seeing is people who really largely come from playing with other people's money, people like Rhys Mogg and, and uh, so many of them come out, John Redwood, they come out of the financial industry. They're now playing with other people's pain. So instead of suffering the pain yourself, uh, you inflict it on other people and describe it as heroic. And I think that's what we're seeing. Thank you very much. A lovely opening there. <laughs> Misha, you have the advantage of speaking five languages, spending a lot of time in Europe, uh, having lived in Europe. You do live in London now. I'm wondering, and you've just come in, I think, from Austria. I'm just wondering what it looks like from over there. Well, um, on the night of the, the referendum, I'd voted by post before. I happened to, actually, I was in Brazil. I was in Sao Paulo, and I stayed up all night following it over the internet, becoming uh, increasingly concerned about, about the outcome. Uh, and the next day, I had to go and meet um, uh, my publishers and a group of their friends to discuss the book that I was writing uh, then, but also to discuss what was happening in Brazil, because Brazil was polarizing very rapidly at this time. And uh, they were all pretty well-educated, well-traveled uh, well people. And one of them said, what's this referendum you've had in the United Kingdom? And I tried to start explaining it. And I realized I didn't, I didn't have the words, I didn't have the tools to try and articulate what had been going on in my own country. What I did notice, that that polarization that the Brazilians were experiencing and that the British were experiencing was happening all over the world, very much in the, in the same way in the media through which uh, these divisions articulated themselves. Obviously, it was happening in the United States as well, but you can argue quite easily that it was happening in Turkey, for example, and also uh, in Germany. But each time... They're very culturally specific. They are to do with issues which, unless you are very well acquainted with that country, it's extremely difficult to understand. And I, I, I start by saying that because uh, I, I read Finton's book a couple of weeks ago, and I felt at last I had something which could explain to myself, as well as to the, the people on the outside, what's been going on in this country, a really serious um, uh, polemic 
that reveals everything that we've been going through in, in, uh, in intellectual terms, but written in a way that you grasp uh, immediately. And I think we need a Finton-style book for each of the crises that are going on around the world, because then they will become much, much easier to understand. It is a, a lack of understanding that um, Brexit is greeted with in Europe. So a couple of months after uh, that experience in Brazil, I was in Serbia and having a conversation with a former head of the secret police in Serbia. And he said to me, he, was, he said, we were talking about various things, he said, Mitri, he said, tell me one thing, he said, Serbia, we make mistakes all the time. We destroy ourselves, we destroy other people, we kill. We know we're small, we're stupid, we don't have many resources. But Britain, he said, we always thought that, well, at least the British know what they're doing. And I have no idea. I cannot understand what is going on in the United Kingdom, and I have all the resources of an intelligence service to draw on. <laughs> And uh, as I went around Europe, this was the refrain that I got everywhere, is a complete uh, lack of understanding. Uh, a, a week later, I was having uh, um, a conversation with a British ambassador to another Balkan country, I won't name what it is, uh, to protect their identity. And uh, the ambassador said to me, um, I, I said to the ambassador, I said, so, What's happened since the referendum? And he said, well, the phone stopped ringing. And that's it. He said, nobody talks to us anymore. Nothing. We have absolutely nothing to offer them whatsoever because all they're interested in is developing their relationship with the European Union. So why would they waste their time talking, uh, talking to us? And then a year later, in another European capital... Um, I was speaking to, a, 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 again, at the embassy, I was speaking to a first secretary, and I said, so what's, go what's going on here? Are they interested in London in what, what um, you're reporting back to them? Because there are various crises, of course, going on in Europe at this time, which the British, in normal circumstances, would be very interested in following and understanding. And the first secretary said to me, oh, no, 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 they're not interested in what's going on here. Um, so I said, well, what are they interested in? And they said, well, about once a week, I get a call from an exasperated civil servant in London saying, um, uh, the Secretary of State for Trade wants to uh, uh, come and talk to some ministers. And I will have to say, and what do they wish to speak about? Well, they want to speak about the possibilities of uh, renewed trade links after Brexit. This is talking to countries which are in the European Union. And so they want to discuss what it's going to be like when we have to pay more tariffs and have barriers and so on and so forth. So I said, well, what do you do in that situation? I say, I, uh, they said, I carry out the instructions. I ring up the uh, minister's office and say, got the Minister of Trade coming out wanting to speak to you about the great opportunities post-Brexit. And I said, what happens? And they said, they put the phone down, quite literally, that's it. We have, in Europe, we have cut 
all of our ties in terms of the emotional, the cultural, the economic, uh, and the political relationships with the European Union. And there's a deeper reason for that is because most countries in the European Union really valued the British presence in Brussels. Yeah. So the Scandinavians and the Dutch, first of all, like their commitment to the free trade, lowering of bureaucracy where, where possible. The French and the Scandinavians and everyone like the fact that we balanced out the German influence inside the various institutions. And the Germans liked the fact that the British always had a pragmatic solution to things. The East Europeans liked the British because the British were always very constructive when it came to expanding the European Union uh, to the East, which I believe was a historical role because the Central Europeans had always taken it in the neck, whether from Germany or whether from Russia. And they had suffered the bulk of the European trauma, which we had been involved in from uh, the Hundred Years' War onwards. But it was the Central Europeans who had to pick up the tab in terms of people killed. And so there was this incredibly, incredible warmth towards the British from all parts of the European Union. And now, and this is why when Brexit happened, a lot of them uh, spoke in terms of the way that Donald Tusk spoke, saying, we're really going to miss you. You know, that was not a sort of, a sort of pathetic one-liner that he had come out. He really meant it. And lots and lots of people in the European Union feel that way. So that letter you saw from the leaders of German political parties, minus the AFD, uh, um, last week, that was actually heartfelt. But I am beginning to detect all over Europe a turn that they have been bending over backwards, bearing in mind that when Britain says we want to leave the European Union, the single market and the customs union, what they're actually saying is they're saying we no longer think that this trading arrangement gives us a competitive advantage. So we are going to voluntarily give up that competitive advantage and we will be competing with you. We will no longer be cooperating with you. And so the European Union really has no choice but to say, okay, you want to be competitors, we're going to compete. We'll try and be friends wherever possible, but we are now going for the same markets in competition with you. And so those people who say that the European Union are being unreasonable haven't understood the logic of what their own strategy is in terms of leaving the European Union. And that's something that they must, but I suspect never will, um, in, uh, in, internalize. And the thing that I've noticed recently that's happening, and I brought the copy of the Spiegel along with me um, uh, on purpose, this is yesterday's uh, Spiegel, because the lead article here uh, is entitled, Let Them Go. And the Spiegel has been one of the most uh, pro-British uh, newspapers throughout Europe for a very long time. 
and uh, they have always been anti-Brexit. But this lead article articulates the exasperation that is now being felt amongst liberal Europe, whether you're in Sweden, whether you're in Greece, whether you're in, in Holland or whether you're in Spain, and now whether you're in Germany. They're saying, you know what? We've had enough of the British bitching, telling us that it's all our fault, and frankly, the time has come, they can go. Just get the hell out of here and we'll get on with dealing with our issues. And we, if we leave the European Union, if Brexit does happen, particularly if it's no deal, we are suddenly going to feel very cold and very, very alone in the world. But Fintan, what Misha was saying a little bit earlier was whilst we might feel very isolated and very, very cold, actually in every country on earth virtually, you can find a Brexit, a, a sort of crisis that is an existential one and the rest of it. Yes. So I'm just wondering, with you just about to go off to Princeton, and you spent a lot of time in the United States, for Trump, read Brexit? Oh, yeah, look, you know, it's, it's very important to say that Brexit is, is of course, part of a, of, a, of a global phenomenon throughout all our democracies. And, of course, it's, we, we know what's driving it, ultimately, which is that we have increasing levels of inequality. The Oxfam report yesterday, 26 individuals now control the same amount of resources as half the world's population. That is incompatible with democracy. You know, the, the promise of democracy is the promise of equality. It says every single person in this room, every single person outside this room, every citizen counts for the same amount as everybody else has the same voice. That's the promise, and the promise is mocked by this, this you know, increasingly grotesque inequality. And you know, this is since 1979, 1980. This has been what's been driving world development. So of course. You, you end up with, with, with a fundamental crisis of democracy. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't deny at all that the, the factors that are at work in Britain are part of this uh, global phenomenon. But I think Michel was right when he said that, uh, you know, global things may happen in every country, but they happen differently in each country. <laughs> they happen, they, they, they link in with different kind of pre-existing conditions, as it were. Um, so I, I think what happens with Brexit is that you have a kind of sludge tank of, you know, toxic fantasies that are there already, you know, about the Second World War, about the European Union as a sort of force for domination. Um, and the division that Misha was talking about um, is, is, is almost looking for a form. So, my, my argument, and it may seem a completely counterintuitive argument, is that Brexit actually, at the root of it, has very little to do with the European Union. You know, Brexit is an internal crisis within the United Kingdom, which is, in a way, looking for an expression. It's, it's, it's going to find a way of expressing itself. And the things that I was talking about, about these kind of pre-existing dark fantasies, only matter because they drive it towards a myth of national oppression, and then a desire to express itself in national liberation. So, so Brexit kind of uses the language of national liberation movements, you know, Independence Day. Um, we had the big meeting here today, you know, that, that Rhys Mogg was, was addressing with the clock, you know, counting down to 
freedom, you know, freedom in 70 days, you know. It, this sort of rhetoric is, is quite specific, and I think it comes from the way in which a lot of this stuff has been thought about. And um, therefore, I think it's important for us to absolutely focus on the overall economic inequalities and the, the way in which those economic inequalities, of course, are also very much regional inequalities within, within England and within Britain. Um, but it wasn't inevitable that they would take the shape that they did. You know, there, there, are, there are reasons why this particular tragedy is unfolding in this particular way. And also, this is one of the reasons why Brexit is so paralyzed. You know, it, it, Trump, bad as he is, is in power. In a way, the Brexiteers are not in power. You know, if you stand back from it, one of the most extraordinary things is they won, you know, and they did win. You know, there were lots of very, very important questions about how they won and about the illegalities and about the interference, but they won. Usually what happens with a revolution is the revolutionaries then take power. And you have to remember, these people were incapable of taking power. You know, they couldn't do the first thing, you know. Like, Boris Johnson or Michael Gove could not become prime minister. It's absolutely extraordinary. Johnson, in particular, we know from all the survey evidence, was easily the most popular, easily the most influential figure in terms of, in terms of Brexit happening. And, and you know, he was, he was just, he, he just fell at the very first hurdle. You know? he, he couldn't even get to, into power. And this actually tells us something about the nature of Brexit. You cannot free yourself from imaginary oppression. You, know? you can only have imaginary freedom. And that, that's, that's its fundamental problem. Like, what do you do with your revolution? Do you say, uh, from now on, English fishermen will no longer have to wear hairnets? You know? <laughs> well, they never did. Um, you know, I. Uh, uh, we are declaring donkey rides on beaches, which were banned by the European Union, of course, which of course they weren't, are now available, you know, again. Um, I have a whole chapter in the book about the prawn cocktail flavored crisp and its role in Brexit. Boris Johnson's first campaign was about, he started it in, in Brussels. Um, he spotted, you have to, of course, an awful lot of this is about journalism. I think it's one of the very specific things about Brexit, that there are far too many newspaper columns. Simon newspaper columns, I wouldn't let me run a country, you know, I mean, you know, but, but you know, very privileged people um, who, you see, one of the reasons why you don't want newspaper columns running your political campaigns is that actually chaos is really good if you're a newspaper columnist, you know, because you get to write more stuff. Look at me, sure, you know, I'm selling books on it. Back, you know, I mean, we're not the kind of people you want to be actually running these things. But, but you know, Johnson's problem was he was, he was sent to Brussels as Daily Telegraph correspondent on the back of having been fired by the Times for lying, which is quite hard to achieve, immediately <laughs> sent... <laughs> he was immediately sent to Brussels, realized that Brussels is really boring. The, the whole point about Brussels is it's really boring. I mean, you know, the stuff they do is, is really, really tedious. So you're on page 15 as the Brussels correspondent. How do you get onto the front page? And you do it by making stuff up, you know. And, and so he spots a regulation, which is that if it's a potato product, it can't have more than 50% sugar in it. And he realizes this has really serious implications for exotic flavored crisps that, that are, are part, and he says, a part of British heritage. 
<laughs> our heritage of exotic flavored crisps are being threatened by the, by the European Union, you know, and, and runs a whole thing on it. You know. now, there was no point, actually, I, I'm sure some of you are great fans of prawn cocktail flavored crisps, and you will not have suffered a drought. You know. There was no point at which you couldn't buy them. So it never happened. It's, it's all fantasy, and it's all this kind of um, camped-up hyper-exaggeration of a sense of grievance. And the problem with that is that you cannot then assuage hyped-up fantasy grievances. You know, the real grievances, which of course are there, these people have absolutely no intention of doing anything about except making them worse. You know, we all know that the people who will suffer most are the very people who were sucked into this sense of anger, this, this sense of, of, you know, people actually did have some reasons to feel sorry for themselves. But the people who are driving the thing, who are tapping into this mentality, it's a completely free pass for them. You know? and, and to me, this is why the thing is, is paralyzed. They cannot take power, they cannot take responsibility, they don't have a program. And so what's just happened now is, you know, over, we've seen it over the last uh, couple of months, is they've actually seen what Brexit actually looks like. And, and Boris Johnson has come very close to saying, it actually looks much, much worse than staying in the European Union, which of course is objectively true. The only true thing they can tell you is that the only kind of Brexit that's negotiable with the European Union is second-class European Union membership. And who in their right minds would swap first-class membership for second-class membership? Which, which is why, Fintan, <laughs> and I find this really interesting, let's take a, a country where the, the, the revolutionaries have taken power, which is Italy where you have uh, Salvini as the, the key character, who's the, the leader of the Lega Nord, uh, um, and he's the interior minister. Uh, and uh, there's um, absolutely no discussion about Italy leaving yeah. the European Union, because they'd say, why would we? We get all these subsidies, you know, they, <laughs> they fund public works in everywhere from Palermo through Rome, and... Um, uh, this is great. We can be angry with the Germans and we can spout off and we can, we can do the uh, immigration thing, although the immigration issue is different in Italy because it's about the immigration, uh, immigrants coming from, uh, from North Africa mainly. But uh, we have absolutely no intention of leaving the European Union, which is why one has to understand the cultural specificities. And I realized this actually for the first time when I first visited uh, uh, Palermo, when I was first starting to, to work on the mafia in the 1990s, is I was um, sitting in one of the great markets in, in Palermo, the food markets, and then came this train of people working for butchers who were, and it was around the time of the prawn cocktails and the, and the you know, straight bananas and this sort of thing, this, this a train of people working for a butchers who were um, uh, pushing um, supermarket trolleys. And in each supermarket trolleys was a full upturned pig. And they were using <laughs> the pig's trotters as the trolley bar on which to push. And I, said, I realized all of a sudden, you know, even if the European Union is making all these rules, in Italy they don't pay a blind bit of attention. And who cares? And that's when, when you started talking about the British 
and their uh, masochistic tendencies of wanting to be whipped by the European Union. Of course, what the British do is they take every, every rule and every directive deadly seriously yeah, yeah. and carry it out to the letter, whereas the rest of Europe don't care. <laughs> I mean, the, the reality is, and somebody did a great piece of work, you know, the reality is that over the entire period since the single market uh, in, you know, was brought in, well, it's really kind of got underway in, 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 was brought in 92, got underway in 93, Britain has only objected to 72 regulations, 72 over that entire period. Um, and if you look at each and every one of them, they're all about, you know, let's, you know, some, it's all, everything to do with some lobby who think we should have a carcinogenic chemical in a piece of food, <laughs> you know. None of it is in the public interest at all. I mean, and none of it is stuff that if you actually put it out there to the public and said, would you like to have this stuff on your dinner plate? Nobody would be saying, yes, we would. So, it, it, you know, in that sense, it's, it's both a remarkable phenomenon because it's, it's about all of this kind of camping up of a sense of grievance, but also it's a doomed project. I mean, my, my contention is that Brexit really died on the 24th of June 2016. So as soon as it came into contact with reality, it, it really could not continue. It had nowhere to go other than into breakdown. You know, it, it could not be a, a, a project that achieved anything because the reality kills it. If you make your living and if you sustain your political system out of having a scapegoat, don't kill the scapegoat. It's actually pretty dumb. <laughs> having understood, apparently, how we got to where we are, how does it end? Fintam, tell them, tell, tell, them, tell them the story about, um, about the Michael Caine movie, uh, about the Italian job. Uh, because <laughs> that's how it ends, basically. <laughs> well, um, so, some of you, I'm sure, are avid readers of the Daily Mail, so you, I'm sure you all know. Um, um, so, um, Sarah Vine is Michael Gove's wife, writes a column in the Daily Mail, and she, she described, it was an extraordinary column where she, she described, this was, I think, two days after the Brexit vote, so she, she described waking Michael Gove up to tell him the result. Now, in the first place, the fact that he was asleep, I, I just find... <laughs> I don't know. But she, she wakes him up, and, and she says, you were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. <laughs> you know? Um, which tells you everything. You know, it, it was a performance. It was supposed to blow the doors off. It wasn't supposed to... Uh, if you know the Italian job, of course, the scene, they, they blow the entire vehicle up, which you're not supposed to. But, um, and the Italian job, by the way, is really worth watching again because it, it's, a, it's a whole ballet of Brexit, you know, with, with, with beautiful British mini cars, uh, you know, dancing around, being chased ineffectually by Italian fiats, you know, which always kind of go off cliffs and into rivers. And, you know, uh, and it's a kind of fantasy about joining Europe. But it ends, of course, with... So they pull off the great job, and they have a, they have a, they have a kind of a bus, and, and they're driving up the Alpine roads to get, to get away, and the bus swerves off the road. And it ends with the bus sort of perched perfectly on the cliff, and the gold bars kind of shift down to one side and all the robbers, all the English robbers are on the other side. And they move towards the gold bars, 
to rescue them, but they realize if they move towards the gold bars, they're going to go off the cliff. <laughs> and so they're kind of completely stuck where if they go for it, and the gold bars, by the way, have a Union Jack on top, right? So you know, this, is, this is, is global Britain. You know, this is the, 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 the reward. Um, so the more they move towards it, the more certain it is that they will plunge to their doom. Uh, so they're just paralyzed. They're just paralyzed. There. And Michael Caine, of course, at the end of the movie, he, 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 you know, he's the leader of the gang, and he crawls towards the gold bars and it shifts. And then he just turns around and he says, wait a minute, I have an idea. <laughs> and then he says, uh, uh. <laughs> and in a way, that's, you know, you've got this paralysis. Um, and it's a paralysis which is telling you something, though. When I, when I read that, Fenton, when I read that passage, of course, the thing that I thought about when you were talking about the minis and the fiats, that the minis were designed by Alexis Igonis, who was Cypriot, German, yeah. and English, yeah. i.e. it's a European Union product, which is, now, um, um, which is now manufactured by BMW in Oxford, but probably not for very long if yeah. things go bad. Yeah, yeah. But, the, 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 but, but you've the, got the doors off. Yeah. But you haven't yet told us how it ends. Well, well it, <laughs> um, some, I, I, I keep using this line, but you, you can't beat it, really, which is uh, also true in life, by the way. If, I'm, you know, if you ever want to give your children a piece of great advice. You know, it's just, um, so uh, Dr. Watson says to Sherlock Holmes, he says, you know, how, do you, how do you solve a particularly difficult case? And he says, Holmes says, eliminate the impossible. And whatever remains, however improbable, must be the solution. And the impossible now is deal or no deal. You know, the, the game show options are gone. There is, no, there is no deal that the European Union can agree to that can pass in the House of Commons. I think that's pretty clear. Um, it's not going to reopen the, the withdrawal agreement. Um, so it, it, it just seems very clear that there is no possibility of a deal passing. There's also, I think, no possibility of no deal, uh, unless the masochistic tendencies <laughs> have gone so far out of control that, that you know, there's nothing we can do about it. But they I, reach I, for the gold bars. They reach for the gold bars. Well, the, the only, so what's the improbable? If, if you eliminate the impossible, you're left with the improbable, and the, the improbable is a second referendum. You know, it, it's, it's just... It, and presumably, presumably, if we had a second referendum, I, I agree with you with that, uh, that analysis, the second referendum would have to be either we remain in the European Union or we have a no deal. And it is, it is not beyond the bounds of possibility that the British people asked that would vote for a no deal. Uh, look, we have to accept that, that it's, if it happens, it's a real fight, you know, it's so, so it's, it's absolutely not a given that, that uh, and even, you know, the polls are interesting all that, but you can't take that for granted. We know referendums are very strange beasts, and we know that all sorts of stuff happens in them. Ha to me, there, there are two ways that Britain can come out of this. You can either go into, uh, just bear in mind, by the way, that this is the easy bit. Right? So, if by some miracle the House of Commons passed the withdrawal agreement next week, you know, it's not going to happen, but if it did, that's only the beginning. You know? That was supposed to be the easy bit. That was supposed to be done in six months. There were only three issues to be dealt with. You know, which one was you know, the mutual rights of citizens, the other was the divorce bill, the 39 billion, and the other was the Irish uh, issue. They're complicated issues, but there are only three of them. Once you start into the final state, the actual relationship between Britain and the European Union after Brexit, 
Um, you have every single European country then has its own interests in this. And every single one of them has a veto. So in the process we've had so far, individual countries didn't have a veto. The European Union has been very unified. So you're into a nightmare which could last years. So if you're going to get out of it, the only other way to go is to say, is not to say to people, you were stupid, you, you know, were fools, you did a really bad thing, be ashamed of yourselves, and let's pretend we're going back to June 22nd, 2016. The status quo was not acceptable to huge numbers of people for very good reasons. So it seems to me that if a second referendum is to be won, it has to be won on the basis of acknowledging that the Westminster system is dead, that this is the death throes of something. When you see a polity, an entire political system, so paralyzed, it's telling you something. Brexit is a symptom, it's not itself the disease. And so there has to be a new dialogue about how this place is governed, about how your democracy can be renewed, and in particular about how the indignities that come with these gross inequalities are going to be addressed. If, if that's what the offer to people is, if it's led, the one great advantage that um, a second referendum would have is that it will not be led by David Cameron and, 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 and Osborne, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I think it needs to be led by civic figures. It needs to be led by people who are coming from the society who have become engaged around this, and it has to be an argument for radical change. If it's an argument for going back to the status quo, I think it will lose. I don't know how you feel about that. I feel it's going to be, uh, it, were it to happen, it's going to be a very uh, a big struggle, and it's all hands to the deck, basically. Um, you haven't mentioned the other dynamic in play, which is that there may not be a Britain left yeah. at the end of it all, and you're left with England. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who thought Northern Ireland would begin to talk quite seriously about reunification? I mean, you know, we went to a unionist uh, um, a club the other day where the women were talking absolutely openly about the possibility of joining the Republic. Not, I'm sure, that your Republic is particularly desirous of having Northern Ireland. <laughs> And, and in addition to that, you have Scotland. Yep. And things are moving in Wales, too. I mean, we interviewed a lot of farmers last night who had voted leave, but now are absolutely grieving. Yeah. Well, this is the point that uh, Fintan was making about when faced with the reality, they ha you have to start reassessing because the reality is too terrible to to contemplate. But uh, I'm very interested, Fintan, to hear what you think about, uh, about Northern Ireland uh, in, in particular. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, I mean, Brexit is a symptom of, of, of the, you know, the, the pre-existing long-term problem of the Union. You know, the, the Union is, was a, after all, it's not a, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing inevitable about the Union. You know, it's a, it's a, in historical terms, relatively recent construct. 1707 is not that long ago, you know. Um, and it has already changed radically, of course, with, with the Republic of Ireland leaving it in, in, in 1922. Um, so uh, one of the weird things about Brexit is that it, it's partly driven by English nationalism, which we've seen, you know, has been coming you know, all the surveys, all the studies have been showing this kind of rise of, 
of an English identification since the millennium in response to the establishment of the Scottish Parliament in 1999 and the Belfast Agreement in 1998. Um, and one of the things that needs to be said here, b before we just talk about Ireland briefly, but is that there is nothing um, shameful or um, necessarily toxic about an English sense of pride in being English. There's, there's nothing wrong at all with, with the desire for people to think about England as a political community. Um, English people have as much right to this as anybody else does. The problem with it is, is that it's really poorly articulated. Nobody is really talking about it. And even now, what's happened is, you know, instead of actually, you know, history is a real, real, you know, joker. I mean, to throw the DUP right into the middle of all of this right at that moment, you know. Um, so exactly at the moment when people should be talking about what, you know, everybody knows that the English thing is one of the things going on. So let's talk about it. Let's, let's think about how it might be given some kind of positive meaning. What happens, you know, the precious, precious union, you know, doubling down on the pretense that the union is absolutely solid and we all really love it. It's really simple. Your, your own uh, survey, John, the, the Servation sur uh, Study for Channel 4, has a very, very, very interesting question where it says to leave, well, it says to you know, ask voters, um, how concerned would you be if Northern Ireland were to leave the United Kingdom and join the Republic of Ireland? And uh, leave voters, 61% uh, of them say either not very concerned or not at all concerned. <laughs> you know. um, if you ask leave voters in, in, in the Future of England study, they were asked, do you think your taxes should be used to subsidize public services in Northern Ireland? 74% of them say no. And if you ask them, and this is the most extraordinary question, if you ask them, is the uh, implosion of the peace process in Northern Ireland a price worth paying for Brexit? 84% say yes. So the weird thing, this finally comes back to your question about Ireland. So the, we, we always thought a united Ireland would come from Ireland, you know, that it would be to do with the <laughs> dynamics of change on the island of Ireland. A united Ireland is going to come from England. You know, it, it, the, the breakup of the union is actually to do with the fact that a very large part of the English population has mentally withdrawn from the union. It actually doesn't give a damn about the union, and it definitely doesn't give a damn about the part of the union called Northern Ireland. I mean, the complete lack of any discussion about Northern Ireland in the referendum campaign. I remember watching it in Dublin, the last big debate at, at Wembley, um, and Boris Johnson uh, was, well, Frances O'Grady, who was speaking on the Remain side, made a very passionate speech, but she, she wasn't prompted by anybody. She, 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 it was about two hours in, and she suddenly said, look, please, would somebody just talk about the, the peace, peace agreement in Northern Ireland? And, and spoke very well about it. Boris Johnson was to reply to her, and he said, and you can look this up on YouTube if you, if you have the patience and you want to see more of Boris, but um, he actually, I swear to God, he says, in the Balkans, and he goes on to talk about the Balkans. He, he will not say the words Ireland. He won't say peace process. He won't say Good Friday Agreement. He literally will not say it. And that kind of disengagement uh, is why the DUP is one of the most self-defeating parties in, in history that we've ever seen. They have allied themselves to people who actually don't give a damn about them and who are, who are you know, objectively quite happy to see the breakup of the Union, and particularly of Northern Ireland. 
the problem, and you, I was glad you said it because it's honestly not often said, which is that the Republic of Ireland is in no way ready for a United Ireland. You know? <laughs> I mean, um, it's, we're all, well, you know, we've become post-Catholic, but one way we're not post-Catholic is we still agree with St. Augustine, you know, who famously uh, prayed, uh, oh Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Um, <laughs> you know, and we all, we all want United Ireland, but not yet. Oh God, not yet. Anyway, please. <laughs> So, uh, John, I just wanted to say, I've been, I'm uh, making a, a radio series in my How to Invent a Country series, which is the invention of Britain. I'm doing it at the, at the moment. And I, w what was interesting, Finton mentioned 1707, the, the Union. So when uh, Scotland and England joined together in the Union, basically Scotland was bankrupt at the time. And... Uh, uh, but there was still a lot of resistance to joining. There was a lot of resistance in England to Scotland joining the Union as well. Um, but the Scots uh, had to vote to dissolve their parliament, which they did, but only because the English sent up cash and gold in carriages up to Edinburgh, literally in, in carriages under protection, um, to pay off all the Scots' debt from a, from a failed colonial experiment they had. And the deal was, was that Scotland was happy to stay with England as long as the Scots could participate in England's colonial adventures. And the Scots made a hell of a lot of money out of it. They're just beginning to have that debate in Scotland about Scottish role in slavery and, and, and things like that. But when the English no longer deliver uh, continue to deliver financially to the Scots, that's when you see, after 2008, where you see, start to see a general immiseration because of austerity, which is, of course, decided in London, the austerity policies, you start to see the rise of Scottish nationalism again, and you have the referendum, and they come, uh, they come very, very close. Now, if we were to go for a, for a no-deal Brexit... All the SNP, all Nicola Sturgeon has to do is just wait a couple of years, sit back, wait for two or three years, and she will, and, uh, and Scotland will, I, I'm fairly confident, become poorer, and they will win a second referendum. So, you know, David Cameron would go down as the most disastrous prime minister in British history, not only leaving the European Union, but breaking up the uh, United Kingdom uh, as well. These are very, very big issues. Well, on that note, I think we should open it up to the audience. And I, I'm not sure what the mic situation is, but there are microphones somewhere, I think. Yes, one there anymore? You're just a mighty athlete, or there's one over there? Right, so there are two microphones around. Uh, are there any questions? Uh, three microphones. Uh, yes, okay, go for it. Oh, you're waving the microphone rather than saying what someone <laughs> wants to ask a question. Yes, there's a question here in the fourth row, fifth row. Keep that hand up. Hello, Titus Alexander, Democracy Matters. Thank you very much for both an entertaining and illuminating uh, discussion. My question is, do you think 
we could learn anything from the experience of citizens' assemblies in Ireland, whether that would help with the logjam. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's a great question, and I do think you could. Um, citizen assemblies were set up in Ireland originally uh, in the wake of the great uh, banking collapse and the huge wave of public anger entirely justified about the bailouts of the banks, and there was a lot of talk about political reform. And um, initially, I was quite cynical about them because I think they were being kind of set up by the political system just as a way of saying, oh, we're dealing with that, let's park it over there, let's have a citizens' assembly. Um, but gradually, they really have come into their own. Um, you, you may know that in Ireland, historically, one of the most divisive tribal questions was abortion, you know, because of the very strong uh, Catholic nature of the culture. Um, in 1983, uh, Ireland has a written constitution, and in 1983, um, you know, right-wing Catholic groups succeeded in getting a, an amendment to the Irish Constitution to outlaw abortion, effectively. Uh, and this, of course, has been an you know, enormously divisive issue. Um, since then, huge numbers of Irish women have had to come to, to Britain to, to, to have abortions. And you've had campaigns to change this over, over the years, uh, and eventually governments agreed that there would be a referendum um, which was the only way to change it because it was in the Constitution to have to referendum to take it, to take it out. And uh, so the, the Citizens' Assembly, just to very briefly explain what it, how it works, is that you, you take... It actually goes back almost to Athenian democracy. People think about Athens as the cradle of democracy, but a lot of Athenian democracy was random. It wasn't elections. It was actually, you know... The, the ballot originally wasn't something you put in, it was something you took out. You were, now of course it was only male citizens, but nevertheless each male citizen had to, and then you were said, okay, well, John Snow is prime minister for the next year. You know, that's the way it worked. Um, so it goes back to that randomness. So it, it randomly selects 99 citizens. Uh, random but weighted, so obviously weighted according to gender, social class, geography, those kind of things, age. So you get a kind of roughly representative group of people, but within that, they're randomly chosen. And if they agree, they join the Citizens' Assembly, and they, they give up four or five weekends, maybe more. It's quite onerous. Uh, and they hear experts. So they hear you know, people who are campaigning on different sides, but they also hear, you know, in the case of the abortion thing, they would hear medical opinion, legal opinion, philosophical opinion, religious opinion. They listen to everybody. Um, and then they debate among themselves and they come up with, with recommendations. And this was absolutely extraordinary because everybody thought, you know, this, this group of people are probably going to end up being very bitterly divided if they're random. And actually, uh, and they, they kind of did straw polls with them at the beginning and they were quite divided. Uh, and at the end, they were overwhelmingly in favor of, you know, the same proposals. They put forward the same proposals, which were shockingly more radical than anybody thought. You know, they said, actually, you know, abortion with no, with no uh, conditions at all, up to, up to 12 weeks, and, and you know, re re a relatively liberal regime thereafter. This was shocking to everybody, but it turned out to be completely accurate in terms of predicting the public vote, but also it shaped the public vote, because what it killed was one of the great things the populists have, which is the elites. This is an elite proposal to try to manipulate you into doing something. When you can say, no, this is actually... This is framed by citizens themselves. 
So I do fully agree with you. I think even if you hadn't got Brexit, we know that our systems of doing democracy are not fit for purpose in the 21st century. We know that things like the Westminster first-past-the-post system, which disenfranchise huge numbers of people, are, should be intolerable in a modern democracy. We know that if citizens are supposed to be intelligent and engaged, why not give them responsibility? Why not trust them? How can we trust 12 randomly chosen people to decide on a matter of life and death as to whether or not somebody murdered somebody, but can't allow them to decide the budget for their local authority? Uh, you know, can't engage them in, 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 in these exciting, interesting ways in, in uh, decisions that affect them. One, one other thing, Fintan, about the Irish referendum, which is incredibly important, is, is that having learnt from what had happened in the Trump election and in the Brexit referendum, uh, the Yes campaign was aware and prepared for fake news, bots, trolling and organized um, digital hysteria, as it were, and they counted it. And why it was so important, the Irish referendum, is it proves that uh, in these situations, you can do something about digital manipulation. Absolutely. It's really important. Absolutely. Let's, you know, take, let's take another question, okay? Um, uh, and there is a, a, a hand up here. I'm trying to see whether it's a man or a woman. <laughs> I think it's a man. <laughs> we, we don't talk about gender too much anymore, John. Come on. Good, good, good. <laughs> we um, talk Fintan. a lot about gender. I've taken a gender pay cut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> we won't go, won't go down that road. Fintan, you take us deep into the dream world of the, of the Leave side. Yes. Um, and if we are to accept that the, the decisions made on the referendum were not rational, I'm interested to know what the dreams of the other side, of the Remain side, are. You know, if, there, if there's a second referendum, it's all very well talking about constitutional reform or parliamentary reform. It seems a bit dry and academic. What are the dreams and the mythology on the Remain side that we're going to tap into if we hope to win that? Well, um, I can say this as an outsider, you know, because, uh, and particularly as an Irish person, that uh, England is one of the world's great cultures, um, and it's one of the world's great sources of radical and progressive and egalitarian ideas. Um, and England has extraordinary traditions of pragmatic but passionate belief in the equality of all human beings, um, in the capacity for um, utopianism to meet with, you know, real practical building of achievements. Um, the, the struggles that, you know, created um, the, the votes for women 100 years ago, the struggles that created the National Health Service, the struggles that created a time in which, um, you know, education at all levels seemed, at least in principle, to be accessible to everybody. Um, these are real things. They're, they're, they're parts of Englishness and English belonging just as much as, as all of these kind of dark fantasies are. I don't think that there's a fundamental mystery about what people want, you know. Uh, they, they want a sense of security, not in some sort of abstract sense, but, but in, in, in the sense that the 
the floor that's underneath them, uh, the floor of dignity, the floor of, of, of belonging, uh, is, is, is going to be stabilized in some way. Um, and they want the basic sense that their kids' lives will be better than their lives. And what's happened over the last 25, 30 years is that that basic promise has been withheld from very many people. One of the reasons, I mean, it's very easy for us to be sniffy about nostalgia, but if I was a kid growing up in, in some post-industrial towns in England, I would feel enormous nostalgia for my father's life or for my mother's life. You know, they, 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 they had access to things that I don't have. So this is why I think the, the, the discourse has to be a discourse of not simply saying you were wrong, but a discourse of saying your anger is right, your sense of, 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 of being um, done down is right in many ways, your sense of being left behind is right. But this is the wrong target, it's the wrong project. This is a target by people you know, who, who have the golden lifeboats. Uh, that, that Anna Subri talked about. And I think class war needs to be turned around. You know, how have we allowed an ultra-right-wing reactionary project led by, you know, Eaton and Oxford uh, toffs to pose as a working-class proletarian revolt against elites? That needs to be turned around. There needs to be anger against these people. You know? uh, uh. More questions. Let me just uh, look around here. Uh, I see lots of men. Uh, I see a, a woman. Let's right go for it. Yes. John, right well, in the front there. Well, I see a red sleeve, which I saw first, and then I'll go to somebody in the front. Thank you. I have been really enjoying this manual conversation this evening. <laughs> yes. um, I would like to pick up on what you're saying there, Finton. Uh, where do you see the leadership for this class war? Um, arising from, because it doesn't seem to be coming from the Labour Party at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm sure Misha would have things to say about this as well, but uh, I mean, for me it's just, it's just tragic. You know, I, I grew up um, admiring the British Labour Party enormously. Uh, large numbers of my aunts and uncles emigrated, um, not to England, but to social democracy, you know. They, they grew up poor in, in Dublin and, and being able to come to England to, to get a job, a union job you know, with, with, with some dignity and protection to be able to have educational opportunity for their kids, to be able to have the National Health Service. You know, the, the Labour Party is, uh, you know, has a, has a history of extraordinary, real, tangible achievement and leadership. And I just don't know where it is now. I, I don't know why this kind of... So my book really deals with the sort of right-wing reactionary fantasy, but there is another fantasy, you know, which is that... In a way, the European Union is to blame for neoliberalism. Uh, it's the vector of neoliberalism that's brought it into Britain, as if Margaret Thatcher never existed, you know, as if it was the Europeans who invented Thatcherism, as if that relationship with Reagan, you know, was some, something to do with the European Union. Um, of course, the vector has gone the other way. It's actually Reagan and Thatcher who have, who have driven the neoliberal agenda in the European Union and their, and their, 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 uh, their, their legacy. Um, so... Sadly, I, I, of course, there are lots of individual Labour politicians and politicians of the parties that are showing a lot of leadership, but the party itself doesn't seem to be willing to do that. I was really, I was here in this hall two weeks ago, and um, I was hugely impressed and enthused by the young leadership that's emerging. You know, all of those uh, spontaneous, organic groups that are coming up, 
with, with, with young people um, who are much more gender balanced than the panel tonight, who are uh, much more, they look much more like Britain looks in, 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 in terms of who they are. They're incredibly articulate, incredibly smart. Um, and I think it's crucial, one of the reasons why the abortion referendum was won in Ireland, one of the reasons why a couple of years ago we voted, the first country in the world to vote by popular vote, two to one, for same-sex marriage, was both of those campaigns were led by civic society. The people at the top of them were not familiar faces. You cannot have, uh, uh, you know, streaming from Davos today, George Osborne and Tony Blair telling you about, you know, how you, how you made a big mistake with Brexit. You know, so there has to be a new leadership. It has to come up from the bottom. But I, I think it's already beginning to emerge. I think it's extraordinary the way somebody like Caroline Lucas, for example, has, has emerged with, with you know, very little parliamentary power, but, but seems to be able to speak for a lot of people. So I think there are, you know, the positive thing is that if you think about this, if you imagine yourself at the other side of it, you might have emerged with a really genuinely reinvigorated democracy. Uh, with a whole new set of people who are coming into your politics, um, who have a much, much smarter sense of what the real issues are and a, and a renewed passion. They're not professional politicians who've been molded in some bakery somewhere and brought out from, 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 from there and just, you know, seem to be kind of identical people. They're, they seem to have a new kind of reality. I'm going to ask you to answer the next question. Whatever Sorry, it is. Must, this is going to be the last question, um, and, and I will give it to you. Oh, there, there is one up there too. Well, I'll take two questions. Take two questions. But I'll take them both together. So that one and this one. Yes, keep that hand up, and yeah. It's been absolutely fascinating, but we still don't seem to be any further forward, and I quite agree with you, Finton, about two weeks ago and these young people, but we've got less than 70 days to stop us falling over the cliff and creating this better society. And with the idea of people's assemblies, again, it's not a binary decision. Abortion is, a in a sense, a binary decision. Same-sex marriage. Surely the problem with this is it's too complex. We still don't know what Brexit looks like, and we don't know what this deal looks like. So as much as I've enjoyed the last hour and a half, I am still deeply depressed. <laughs> <laughs> let, 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 let's see if we get some uplift from the back. Oh, Go for it. No, yeah. not uplift, sorry. My name's Sandra. Um, the rise of the far right, um, apparently they're ready to exploit uh, whatever happens next and, and inflame that sense of betrayal. Uh, whether we get hard Brexit, soft Brexit, no deal, remain. Um, and what will we be able to do to mitigate that and fight that, bearing in mind Russian disinformation will inflame that as well? What can we do to prepare for that? Misha, you mentioned the hard well, right, and, and you've spent a lot of time in countries in which the hard right is rampant. Yes, and that, that's one of the reasons why uh, I mentioned the Irish referendum, is, is there are now practical, um, practical steps you can undertake in campaigns that will mitigate against the success of uh, people like Dominic Cummings, who you may have seen uh, as, as played by uh, um, Benedict Cumberbatch recently in, in Brexit, the uncivil war. So first of all, 
one has to be smart and wise about this, that um, these are now really tough, hard battles, but the tools are out there. Um, and Cummings was absolutely right about simplifying this very complex issue to take back, to take back control. I have always disliked um, referenda as a tool from the early 90s when I was working in Yugoslavia where you would have plebiscitary democracy to make decisions about an extremely complex country with minorities and with a very immediate memory of, uh, of civil war, war violence as, as well. Uh, I am worried about the way that uh, people like Theresa May are now using a threat of violence, a potential threat of violence, if we don't have Brexit as a way of coercing people uh, to agree with, uh, with her position. And I think that in itself is a dangerous act. But I increasingly believe that Parliament is going to stop a no-deal Brexit and that, uh, <coughs> as Finton said earlier on, um, do we really want second-class citizenship in the European Union over first-class citizenship? And uh, although it may appear to be a, a no-brainer a no to, to a lot of people here, it's something that we have to convince people. And so taking that play, Brexit, the uncivil war, we have to look at it and we have to say, what are the tools that we're going to need to use if there's going to be uh, a second referendum? And I would say Caroline Lucas was exactly who I was thinking of as well, who's articulated so much. It's a great shame she doesn't have a political party, but that is the problem that we have with Brexit, is, is the campaign has been articulated through two political parties who are divided in the Tory party right down the middle, but uh, seriously divided in the Labour Party as well. Jeremy Corbyn is not the person who can win that referendum, A, because he genuinely, on a political level, is worried about the Labour Party being deserted by uh, its working-class support in the North and in the, in North and the Midlands, but also, B, because personally he's not um, a deep... And not a deep thinker. He's been convinced that the European Union is part of a global capitalist conspiracy. And uh, he just will not emotionally and politically ever warm to it. So he's not the person to lead that campaign. And on that note, I think I have to thank both Misha and Finton for very, very stimulating uh, contributions. Uh, and uh, Finton's, Finton's remarkable book is on sale outside. And uh, only to end by saying uh, I'd like to thank the Christian scientists who built this place, but regret perhaps that there wasn't a little more heating. <laughs> <laughs>